best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. Hello and welcome in to another episode of the Future Sox podcast. My name is Mike Rankin. Today, I will be joined by senior writer James Fox. He's with us and we have a very special guest joining the podcast discussing everything internationally regarding the Chicago White Sox. It's Baseball America's Ben Badler. Ben, thanks so much for taking the time. Oh, absolutely. Thank you guys for having me on. So I guess the first thing that I wanted to kick things off with is uh, the recent article you put out, and you talked specifically about the White Sox 2019 international class, and highlighting that, of course, is Yolbert Sanchez, the, the shortstop. Uh, as well as Elijah Tatis, could you just kind of, for our listeners, describe the class? Yeah, I think it was uh, kind of a, a, a smaller class than um, you know a lot of other clubs. They, they obviously traded away some of their bonus pool money this year, and and pretty much uh, probably about half of it, if, if not even a, a little bit more. I'd have to look at the exact numbers, but you know they they gave two point five million of it to. Yolbert Sanchez, a 22-year-old uh, Cuban shortstop, and then and then Elijah Tatis, the uh, younger brother. Uh, I don't know if I want to, you know, talk too much about <laughs> his older brother. I don't want to uh, bring back any nightmares or anything for any of your your uh, uh, listeners. But uh, obviously, the younger brother of uh, the Padres shortstop Fernando Tatis Jr. So uh, you know, four hundred thousand dollars for him. So you know, combined. Uh, about $3 million for those two players who, you know, and, and Tatis, in, in his case, he's, you know, 18 years old. So he, he would have been eligible to sign the previous signing period. So um, two guys who are, you know, that Tatis is like super old or anything like that, but, um, you know, two guys who are not like your traditional July 2nd type signings are the two guys they gave about, uh, you know, combined $3 million to this year. All right, Ben, this is uh, James Fox here. So the White Sox have always been kind of risk-averse in the 16-year-old international marketplace, I guess I would say. Um, they've spent money on older prospects before, but they never really seem to go into that $2 million to $4 million range on the younger guys. Um, some of our readers, myself included, were upset that the White Sox traded over a $1 million again this year instead of spending it. So I guess my question to you would be, like, so their answer was that they didn't have targets lined up um, which, you know, some people thought was unacceptable. Could that have anything to do with the effect still of not knowing what signing period Luis Robert was going to be in and they just, like, didn't have deals lined up? Or do you have any explanation for that? 
Uh, yes. As far as like the trading away, you know, bonus pool money. I, yeah, I, I agree with that. It's, it's something where I actually think that the value of international bonus pool space right now, or, you know, starting in 2019 is, is greater than it's ever been before. Um, you know, you, you, in previous years, teams could just blow past their international bonus pools. So it's like, well, why, why would we trade for more money other than maybe to lower our, our tax bill, um, or, or to squeeze out maybe a a little bit of an extra signing if if we don't want to go over our bonus pool, but mostly you had teams just blowing past their bonus pools and they don't really need to trade for pool space. In fact, I think one year the Dodgers, if I remember right, uh, actually went over their bonus pool and just traded away their bonus pool slots or their bonus pool space because they didn't really even need them. (laughs) And then you had a period of every other year where, you know, you had about 10 teams that couldn't even sign anybody for more than $300,000. So uh, there wasn't a lot of uh, value that teams were getting from trading away their international bonus pool space. Whereas now, you know, there's no more teams under that $300,000 penalty. Everybody is hard capped. You can't go over your pool space anymore. So that pool space is more of a, a scarce resource than it was before. And, and we kind of saw this already this year with the Yankees who, you know, they signed Jason Dominguez, uh, you know, our number one or is going to be our number one international prospect this year in, in the 2019 class. But they were trying to sign uh, John Diaz, a, another really talented outfielder from the Dominican Republic, and they couldn't come up with a trade to, uh, you know, to be able to to get more bonus pool space and, and to sign Diaz. And, and he ultimately ended up signing with Tampa Bay for one and a half million dollars. So I, I think there's more value than ever if, uh, you know, if you're holding out for the right deal to uh, to trade away your, your pool space. But, you know, in, in the White Sox case, uh, it, it seems like they just sort of dumped it away and, and didn't get much uh, much in return uh, on, on value there. So, uh, you know, what I think they, they certainly have plenty of time to, uh, you know, a- after they, they signed Luis Robert to, to know what was, you know, this was going to be the year that, um, you know, they're, they're going to be free to spend again without restrictions, you know, other than the hard cap that everybody's under. Um, so I, I think it's, you know, it, it's, it's also a situation where, yeah, I mean, it, you know, even if you don't have somebody say, you know, right now where you want to spend that money on, there's still players who pop up. I mean, you know, the White Sox have clearly been, you know, aggressive and in, in signing and very active in signing Cuban players. And, and there's a lot of guys that, you know, come out of Cuba and, and kind of come out later, I guess, in, in the process now, just because the reality of, of the international market is teams are, you know, are lining up deals with the players, you know, a year, sometimes two years in, in advance of when they're eligible to sign. Whereas, you know, you can do that with a Dominican and the, or a Venezuelan player, but, you know, with a Cuban player, you, you kind of have to, you have to wait until the player actually leaves Cuba. <laughs> um, so it, it can, you can have Cuban players who come up later in the process. You, you can have, you know, even Dominican and, and Venezuelan players uh, or Mexican players or, or players from other countries. Uh, there's some interesting guys uh, every year coming out of the Pacific Rim too. So 
you, you know, you can have some guys who develop, you know, quote unquote later, I, you know, I put that in quotes because they're still, you know, 16, 17 years old where, you know, they, you, you might end up signing them uh, a little bit later on in, in the process after uh, July 2nd. So um, it, uh, it it's something where I, I think the, the best teams are, are maximizing every uh, dollar that they can in, in their bonus pool. So for, you know, for the White Sox, you know, really not their international parts, really more their, you know, the, the front office to, you know, to trade away that, that bonus pool space, I think is probably not maximizing the, the resources that they have. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think we would agree with you on that. I mean, he, they said, you know, that they traded the money away because it was going to go unused and they didn't have anybody to sign, but I think that's the root of the problem. So um, I guess to follow up on that, how is Marco Patti generally thought of throughout the industry? I mean, he signed Luis Robert, Fernando Tatis Jr., as you mentioned, and Mike Rodolfo, like when he first came on board with the White Sox. And I, you know, I've heard that Marco's fairly highly respected, but they don't spend money like other teams do. Yeah, yeah, they haven't, uh, you know, like when they went over their bonus pool that year, it's not like they were the, you know, you've seen teams like the Cubs, the Rangers, the Padres, you know, probably about half the league, I think, went over their bonus pool at some point uh, to sign a whole bunch of players. And, and in the White Sox case, um, you know, they, they, they certainly spent money, but it wasn't like they had one big year where they just blew it out. It was just, all right, Luis Robert is available. And obviously, Marco Patti was uh, enamored with with Luis Robert. And, I, you know, I don't recall exactly where we have him on our top 100. I'm sure he's top 10. I'm pretty sure he's a top five prospect in the game and and obviously that signing comes down to a lot more than just Marco Patti but um you know it was largely driven by his uh you know his belief in in the player and I, I think that's certainly paying off so far I mean you look at uh you know Jose Abreu uh, another signing again obviously in in Abreu's case it's it's not just uh Marco Patti going in and and doing a deal with uh uh, Jose Abreu's agent that that one's going way higher up the up the chain but yeah uh, you know in Abreu's case I, I remember watching him play when he was in Cuba and I, I did like him quite a bit and then obviously the numbers were pretty jaw-dropping but there you talked to a lot of scouts about him scouts were really good and, and have been doing this for a long time and there was a pretty big split camp on on Jose Abreu Back before he signed, there were there were people who thought he was more of a a four A type slugger uh, who who had a lot and people had a, a lot of questions about how it was going to translate against major league pitching. But obviously the, the White Sox and and Marco Patti were right on that one. And, and then you mentioned uh, you know Fernando Tatis Jr. Were I mean I'm trying to think of the you know the best players again i don't want to you know upset too many of your listeners but you know then you think about the best international prospects who've been signed in the last i don't know five to to ten years and it's, it's kind of hard to judge the guys who signed from you know 2016 17 on they're, they're so young in their careers although obviously wander franco looks pretty damn good uh but he's he's got to be up there in terms of uh, one of the best international free agent signings of, of the last decade. And, um, you know, I, I think certainly in, in his case too, he was another one where, uh, you know, maybe where a Bray was more of a split camp guy and, and obviously a way different kind of player being, 
you know, major league ready, uh, you know, in his mid late twenties at the time he signed, whereas Tatis Jr. was a 16 year old kid. But in, in Tatis Jr.'s case, uh, there were a lot of teams. In fact, I would say the majority of teams really were not all that psyched <laughs> about Fernando Tatis Jr. when he was an amateur player. I, th- I think the White Sox valued him significantly, significantly higher than the rest of the industry did. I, I think he was just a, you know, he was a long, lanky kid, didn't have a lot of strength, uh, didn't have a ton of tools. Uh, you know, he, the swing was a little bit awkward, but I mean, you, you look at him now and I mean, he, he just looks totally different. I, all the, he had strength projection at the time, just looking at his body, broad shoulders, looked like he was going to get stronger and the tools would have a chance to tick up. But I mean, he's running two, maybe three grades faster now than, than he was as an amateur power is way up. The the swing is shorter. Everything is better. The defense is, is better. The arm strength is better. So, uh, you know, I, I, I think, you know, <laughs> with, with, with any signing, there's some amount of, of luck involved. And, and that's probably, you know, that's certainly the case in, with Tatis, that, you know, there's there's some amount of luck in, in being right, but uh, I give uh, give the White Sox a, a ton of credit for uh, being right on on Tatis on a guy where a lot of people around the industry were really not not on him at all. Now, you know, you look at other guys where you know you know they spent money on guys like uh, you know Franklin Reyes or uh, you know Jose Guerrero and you know some seven figure signings that doesn't you know certainly are not trending in in the right direction. Uh, but I, you know, I think you probably look at every organization where, you know, when your, your job is to make decisions on kids who are 16 years old and, you know, in, in reality, especially now the decisions are being made at 15 or, or sometimes even 14 years old, uh, you're, you're gonna, you're gonna have your misses. You're going to have your share of mistakes, but, uh, you know, certainly those, those guys we were talking about Abreu and, Tatis Jr. and and Luis Robert look uh, look pretty good, I think. Ben, that was a lot of really good stuff there, and you you mentioned a few specific White Sox players, um, obviously. And when I when I look back, and obviously there's something there that the White Sox have seen that they wanted to jump on when it, when it comes to Fernando Tatis Jr. and the players of the like. Currently, we're really focused as fans now on uh, Luis Robert, of course. And that kind of brings me back to where Yuan Mankata came up. And he was, at one point, obviously the number one prospect in baseball. And now you see him translate into a potential MVP candidate. Could you compare the two, Mankata and Robert, as they grew uh, to the to the point where they are right now in their career? Yeah, I mean, when, when Mankata was coming up, he... I mean, he was just a absolute, like... It, it's hard to compare him to... <laughs> to people uh just because you don't have many guys that are built like him and have that kind of tool set who who can hit from both sides of the plate who are you know these dynamic power speed threats but who can play i mean you could probably put moncada second third uh center field I, i think he could probably play he's not really built like your classic center fielder but he certainly has plenty of speed um and and coming up through the you know the junior leagues in in cuba 
uh, this guy always dominated. I mean, he was the best hitter in, in Cuba, his age group. He, he went to international tournaments and, uh, you know, as a, as a teenager and, and when scouts saw him there, they were like, Oh my goodness, this is ridiculous. <laughs> like who, who is this guy? We've, uh, you know, people were, were pretty excited about him. Uh, you know, and I think Luis Roberts certainly has some, uh, similarities there were, you know, coming up through the Cuban junior leagues again, like Luis Robert was always probably the best player, his age group. Uh, he was, you know, I think as a 16 year old, I want to say he was playing on their 18 and under junior national team for Cuba. So he was always a, a really high profile prospect coming up in Cuba, very different body type. I mean, Moncada looks like he should be, you know, carrying a football on Sundays or something. Whereas, uh, you know, whereas Robert's more of that, uh, longer lean, uh, athlete, uh, you know, he's, uh, I, I, I think, you know, to, that's, that's something that kind of has, I don't want to say surprised me, but you know, when Robert was younger, there was kind of a question, well, like, is, is this guy just going to get as, as big as a house and, uh, you know, be more of a, a corner guy, but he's actually, stayed very lean, very athletic. He's probably even faster now uh, than he was in Cuba. So, uh, yeah, I mean, two really, really great athletes, premium athletes uh, with with excellent tools and and strong track records of of hitting coming up in uh, Cuba. And, and yeah, I mean, it's very, very different body types, obviously, but uh, probably some similar risk factors, too, and uh, in, in some of the, the swing and miss, like I think in Moncada's case, he probably has a little bit more, uh, plate patience than, than Luis Robert does. Uh, I wouldn't call Robert necessarily like, a, a, a free swinger or anything like that, but, um, I think probably Moncada has a little bit more, I probably expect more walks to come, uh, with, with Moncada than, then we'll end with Luis Robert, but I mean, obviously two really dynamic tooled up athletes who've got a, you know, chance to be power, power speed threats for you. You were mentioning something that kind of caught my interest when you mentioned how, you know, the scouting process internationally is unique. And you mentioned it even starts sometimes at 14 years old. Now with the possibility of an international draft being implemented, that, that would obviously change things. How would you describe the impact of an international draft should it come to pass? Yeah, I think the, the biggest impact right now is it, it would just slow everything down. It's, you know, it's at the point right now where, uh, you know, teams are scouting, you know, eligible players. So players from the current 2019 class, uh, you know, many of them are, you know, still 16, some of them 17 years old. Um, you know, and, you know, there are still players out there who are, you know, 18, 19, basically the same age as, uh, uh, you know, high school seniors, players who will sign as, uh, you know, draft picks in, in 2020 who are looked at as like older guys, but, um, that's, you know, teams are trying to keep track of all these eligible guys for 2019. Uh, they're looking at 2020, but again, the reality is most of these, top 2020 players pretty much know or have plans on where they're going to sign. Teams are keeping track of 2021, uh, 2022. So you're, you're trying to keep track of like four plus years of 
players at once. So, you know, with a draft, that that dramatically shifts how, you know, teams are going to be spending their time scouting players in Latin America. It, you know, if there's a draft, let's say, you know, and, and uh, you know, they've, they've talked about moving the draft to August. So, if, you know, whether it's August, July, June, whenever, um, you know, you're, you're basically – you're, you're the majority of your focus is just going to be on evaluating players who are, you know, either I'm sure there'll be some free agency period. So either some, uh, you know, for non-drafted players. So either players who are eligible to sign or players for the upcoming draft year, you're, you're going to be focused on mostly 2020 players and trying to line those guys up uh, on your board as, as best you can. And, you know, you might keep an eye on players for 2021 to, to a certain degree um, just because when you're going out to different programs and, you know, scouting a 2020 player, you're, you're going to see that programs, you know, players for the following year as as well, probably. So, uh, but it's, it's really just to have a, a sense of who to follow for, for the next year. So, uh, I mean, the, the biggest thing is it would just slow down that process immensely, which I, I certainly think would be uh a good thing, obviously, there's a lot of you know pros and cons to international draft, but I think anything that can slow this process down would be mm-hmm. not better not only for for the clubs to be able to make better decisions, but mm-hmm. but better for the players too. Where you know it's it's tough to ask a you know a kid to be ready to sign for, with a major league club when he's 14 years old. I mean, there's only <laughs> there's only so much strength you can have, and, and right. so much baseball skill and so many tools you can have. I mean, you know, you have guys who run, you know, seven, one, seven, two below average runner at 14 years old, but that's, that's not bad. He, he might be a plus runner by the time he's, you know, 16 years old. There's, you know, a, a kid that, uh, uh, you know, the, the brewer signed this year who was, you know, 14, he was running seven, five and, and now he runs six, five. So like, you know, shaving a full second off his 60 time. It's a jump of about, uh, you know, three-ish grades maybe on on his speed. So, um, you know, I think I think that would, you know, it'd be more beneficial for, for the player, certainly, at least in that sense, just to have a little bit more time to, uh, to develop and, and not be um, having to be ready by the time you're, you know, 14 or, or even uh, – uh, you know, by the time you're like 14 years old or so. So I think that'll be uh, uh, cer- certainly the biggest difference is, is slowing everything down. And and then the other thing is it would it would very much change how, you know, how teams scout in, in the sense that, you know, if, you know, the White Sox go in and they see, uh, uh, you know, Christian Mena or, uh, uh, you know, somebody like that and they say, oh, all right, I want that guy. Let's let's focus on, on him or, or let's try to, you know, get something done with him, you know, right now. All right. Well, the draft, you, you, you really have to line up. I mean, depending on how many rounds it goes, you have to have, you know, I'm going to presume at least a hundred plus, maybe more players lined up on your board. I mean, if, if we're talking about a, a 10 plus round draft, uh, you, you better have at least, you know, 200, 300 or so players lined up because that guy that, you know, you know, whereas now you're, you're just sort of focusing on the guys that, uh, that you really like and, and you want to follow to, 
to try to make a deal with. You know, with a draft, you got to wait your turn and, and hope the guy who you like is there, and, and you just have to be a little bit uh, broader in, in your coverage in terms of being able to make sure that, that you have the right guys lined up beyond just the uh, the top targets that you're that you're really trying to bear down on. All right, Ben. So I wanted to get your thoughts on some of the prospects at the lower levels of the White Sox system. One of the guys that you mentioned that we had our, our eye on throughout the year down in the DSL was uh, Benjamin Bailey. Um, he kind of broke out in the DSL this year. And the way the White Sox have been doing things lately, I think he likely plays stateside next year. What are your thoughts on him and how was he so under the radar? Yeah, he, uh, so yeah, we just posted a report on, on him and their international review and, I went down to the White Sox Academy for, uh, for just to catch them during Dominican Instructional League in November. And, you know, you can, if, you know, if, if you watch the video in that report, uh, yeah. you can see th- this guy is absolutely enormous. <laughs> I mean, um, he's, he's like 6'5, 225 pounds. He's probably going to get even bigger and and stronger he's he's enormous so it's it's hard to think like you know how did this guy get like thirty five thousand dollars i mean he was not a big signing from Uh, panama right yeah yeah from from panama i i I didn't know i didn't know who he was until you know what he started doing this year in in the dsl and and started hearing more about him i mean you, you know you look at his numbers and uh, you know, leads the league in in on base percentage, and uh, I think I think if you just like look at his numbers on on the surface without knowing anything about him, you'd think, oh, maybe like a nice like little player who like you know draws walks and puts the bat to the ball and um, you know gets you know occasional power. Uh, no, he's this guy. This guy is an absolute physical uh, specimen. Uh, power, speed. I I don't know how much. I don't know how much of that speed he's he's going to retain. I mean, you can see he's just he's just so big that I, I think he's going to slow down um, eventually. I mean, he's, he's he's still 18 years old. By the time he's in his early mid 20s, he'll probably lose at least a, a step. But I, he's, he's, I think he's he's always going to run fairly well for uh, you know just just for his size and uh, move around pretty well as a as a corner outfielder. But um, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, that's a really exciting player to get, especially for, for that price. And, you know, he's a guy who went back and, you know, just looking at his, uh, you know, the numbers that he had put up in, in Panama before signing, they have like a, uh, like a big junior national league in Panama. So there's a ton of like games that, that those kids play. Uh, you tend to find the Panamanian players have pretty good instincts and and feel for the game just just because they grow up playing a lot of organized baseball and and he you know he was one of the best hitters in in that league so um not that it's you know great pitching there by any means it's you know you don't see the kind of uh you know you're not saying facing the kind of velocity that kids who are training every day in the Dominican Republic are are facing every day where they're you know facing you know mid upper 80s as uh, you know 14 13 14 year old kids pretty regularly and 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 even guys throwing 90 plus they don't have that kind of velocity in Panama but but he always hit well there so it's 
Yeah, I mean, it, it, Panama is not as as heavily scouted as as the Dominican Republic, or you know, obviously Venezuela has its its challenges right now to to scout those players. But you know, I think certainly if you had put this kid in in the Dominican Republic with the kind of tools that he has, and and obviously with the benefit of hindsight, um, you know, the kind of hitting hitting ability that he has right now relative to to his peers, I I, I don't think there's <laughs> much chance that uh, he's, he's only signing for $35,000. So um, yeah, for me, that, that was one of the more exciting kind of sleeper prospects that uh, I think any club signed for, uh, uh, you know, a five figure type type bonus in, uh, in 2019, especially for a, a position player. I mean, I think you see a lot of cases where, you know, you sign a, you know, a pitcher for, you know, 40 grand or 10 grand and, you know, they're, 87 90 and and all of a sudden boom they're 90 94 maybe up to 95 pretty quick and um so yeah i think you find a lot of pitchers that way but it's, it's much more challenging i think to get those uh low dollar bargain position players uh like bailey so i, I think they did uh you know we'll see what happens next year maybe he you know falls on his face completely but uh so far a lot of a lot of arrows pointing in the right direction with him yeah, it's certainly good to hear. There's a couple other guys in the DSL I just wanted to touch on. So um, catcher Jefferson Mendoza, he he had a pretty good year, I think, in his second year down there. Last year, the catcher. And then somebody that you highlighted last year, 16-year-old lefty Ronaldo Guzman, um, actually struck out 76 over 51 innings last year. So what can you tell us about him, I guess, just like the stuff and how that projects? Yeah, Guzman. Yeah, uh, Guzman. Yeah, he's a good example of like, uh, you know, more of like an under the radar type arm where it, it actually looked pretty good <laughs> uh, right away. I mean, in in his case, it's uh, I think it's more more about pitchability, feel for pitching than raw stuff, or, or at least you know raw fastball. I think he's you know fastball. He's he's right around ninety miles an hour. It's it's not overpowering you, you need to hope some more velocity comes with him which you know which it certainly could he's he's young he's he's got time to develop it sometimes it comes sometimes it it doesn't um you know we look for certain projection indicators on pitchers to see if that's gonna come but uh sometimes you're you're just guessing to uh to a certain extent so um well you know we'll, we'll see what happens with that but he's, he's got good feel i think especially for uh, for, for pitching and, and he's got some feel for for his off-speed stuff too uh, uh, pretty advanced changeup especially for uh, for his age and, and he's got feel for uh, spinning a breaking ball so uh, you know it's it's uh, uh, you know somebody like a, you know maybe like a Christian Mena for example might uh, uh, might have a little bit more upside I, I think who, who they signed this year but um, you know certainly in in his case obviously you, you got to be encouraged with the with the results so far and and hopes that some more uh hope some more velocity comes around uh as he as he develops and uh yeah you know mendoza guy repeating the the dominican summer league kind of a tough year his uh uh his his first season now but you definitely like to see the uh the progress that uh that he made uh this season so uh kind of wait and wait and see on on him Last one for me, Ben. Really appreciate the time. To round it out, how do you 
evaluate the White Sox facilities in the Dominican, and, and how would you say that they stack up against other teams that, that are in the area? Uh, in, in terms of just the, the facility itself? Yeah, the quality and, and the access. Yeah, I mean, the so, you know, there, there's a bunch of new or, or newer facilities in the Dominican Republic that are just beautiful. Um, you know, the Indians and the the Giants, the, the Pirates is, is maybe a few years older now, but that's, you know, a really nice uh, facility. So, so all these clubs that have been, uh, you know, building these, these new academies in the Dominican Republic, uh, are like, you know, very top of the line type, type facilities, uh, with, with a lot of different amenities for, uh, you know, for the players and, and for the staff there, uh, you have some, some clubs that have, uh, academies that are, are a little bit older, um, but, you know, have been kept up pretty well. Uh, are, are, you know, teams are investing money, you know, the Padres, the Yankees that are, uh, you know, putting more money into them to, uh, you know, renovate them and, and stay up to, you know, stay up to date with, with everything. Uh, and then there's, there's kind of a collection of teams that, uh, you know, have more of a, you know, bare bones, type of academy and that's that's probably the category i would put the the white Sox into um you know there's there's a handful of other clubs that are uh you know probably in that in that same boat there's like uh like like a little area where there's uh you know the white Sox, the orioles the reds uh the diamondbacks and the blue jays are there as well in this area in boca chica called uh baseball city so um, it's, it's definitely in, in, in terms of location, it's, it's a very convenient location, uh, to have, you can, you know, have your DSL players basically walk to, uh, some of their road games. Uh, but just, you know, in terms of the facility itself, it's, it's not one of these, uh, sparkly new, uh, facilities that, uh, a lot of the other clubs have, but, um, so it's, you know, if, if you know, if I, own the White Sox. It's definitely an area where I would want to uh, uh, invest. I, I think it would be a good investment for them to, uh, and, you know, it's easy for me to spend somebody else's money, but I, I think it would be a, a good investment to, uh, you know, to try to build out their, their own facility and, um, you know, kind of upgrade what they do. And it, it, it makes an impact both in terms of uh, scouting. You can, you know, bring players in to, uh, to to evaluate them and and also for, uh, for you know for player development obviously when when you have all these guys in there for uh, your your Dominican summer league guys and and even other guys who are uh, coming down to uh, to be there either to to get ready for the season uh, in, in the spring or or before spring training or you know who are there after the season for for Dominican. Uh, instructional league uh so it's it, you know it benefits the players it, it benefits the staff i think it just benefits the the whole organization uh, you know ultimately it's uh it's it's a facility what what matters is uh you know is the players that you're you're putting in there but uh yeah it's it's definitely more um in the kind of the bare bones i think type facility where it's 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 functional uh there's there's nothing uh flashy about it but um, uh, but yeah, if it's, uh, if it were me, I'd, I'd definitely like to see them, uh, make an investment to, to upgrade what they have down there. 
Yeah, Ben, we, I mean, we uh, cover the draft in the international market, so we're, we're fans of spending other people's money as well. So that's, <laughs> yeah, we, we agree there. Um, this is my last one, and thanks again for coming on with us today. We really appreciate it. Is there anything you can tell us yet about um, the White Sox related to the 2020 upcoming period for next year? And um, is there another former international prospect in their system maybe that we haven't asked you about today that you're still high on going forward? Uh, uh, like somebody else in the system right yeah. now, or yeah, I guess like just somebody they've signed in the past, like a Mieses or Lennon Sosa, somebody we haven't talked about today, maybe. Yeah, I mean, I saw. Geez, I I don't know, like if he's ever gonna put it together, but like I saw Anderson Comas when I was yeah. down at uh, at their academy for just you know he was there for Dominican instructional league and like you know I, I liked him as an amateur uh just you know a lot because of the the body and you know I, I don't know if he ever puts it all together but like there's not many people in the world that look like Gregory Polanco <laughs> physically mm -hmm. uh but he you know I don't I don't know if he has that kind of speed necessarily but like he's just this big physical dude where like if it ever all clicks for him I think it's a probably a long shot for, for that to happen, but, um, you know, it's certainly, I can see why, like, he's probably going to get a lot of, a lot of chances, um, and then, you know, Christian Mena, who, uh, you know, I kind of, I think I just briefly touched on earlier, but, uh, you know, you, you throw a whole bunch of arms, you know, I, I feel like I write up and, uh, a lot of pitchers, and it's a lot of the similar type report where a guy's, you know, 87 91 uh some feel for an inconsistent breaking ball scattered strikes like <laughs> you know it, you see a lot of those same type profiles and you know a few of them click and, and a lot of them don't um in in Mayna's case that's i you know I, I think you see a, a, a lot of positive projection indicators with the body a lot of space to put weight on 6'2 170 it's it's a pretty free and easy uh type delivery he's he's been up to 91 and he's he's got really good spin on on a breaking ball um you know some guys it's uh you know they, they struggle with the breaking ball that age and, and a lot of guys just kind of like get around it it ends up being more of a, a slurvy pitch but um in you know I, I think he still does that some sometimes just pretty normal but uh, just the feel for spin, the the rotation on on that pitch is is pretty impressive. So, um, you know, of of that big glob of of pitchers every year that that sign with the you know a lot of similar uh, traits, I, I think just the that that feel for spin and a breaking ball definitely uh, sticks out with him as a guy who's uh, you know ha has that he has athleticism. Uh, I, I think he's going to be a you know a a solid strike thrower too. Uh, you know, we'll kind of wait and see. I uh, got a chance to see him at the uh, Dominican Instructional League for one very quick inning because he was very, <laughs> very effective. Got a couple swings and misses against uh, uh, yeah, so Antuna, who's I believe 19 or 20 now in, in the Nationals farm system. He was down there rehabbing uh, one of their top 10 prospects. So uh, he's he's a guy who, I mean. <laughs> Pitching in the draft, right? You know, pitching in the draft is, is always difficult for for high school arms, and you can 
magnify that when you're taking off two years for a 16 year old uh, right handed pitcher out of the out of uh, Latin America, but uh, he's one guy who I'm, I'm pretty intrigued to see you know where where the stuff is at in uh, in a couple of years with him. That's Ben Badler joining us here on the Future Sox podcast from Baseball America. You can follow Ben on Twitter at Ben Badler, B-A-D-L-E-R. Ben, thanks so much for taking the time. Oh, absolutely. I always uh, enjoy talking prospects, so thank you guys for, for having me on. Thanks, Ben. Subscribe to Ben and Baseball America. Well, you should subscribe to Baseball America to get Ben's information. Go to BaseballAmerica.com for all the information. That'll do it for this edition of the Future Sox podcast for James Fox and for Ben Badler. My name's Mike Rankin. We will talk to you next time.